I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture Podcast. It's great to have you all with us. Uh, my name's Luke, and I'm here with Seth Trout. Seth, good to see you this morning. It is good to see us this morning. Yeah, maybe. Is it as good to hear us? That's always the question. Well, I, that remains to be seen, I suppose. Uh, but here we are, fresh off of... Uh, Right, we we don't we can go anywhere we want. Anything we we're not in the middle series. of a series that uh, we did ask anything. Man, the the wheels are off the rails. The future is ours. It's so fun. So, uh, with that, let's lock ourselves in to another couple episodes of a little mini series. This will be fun. Uh, tell us where we're going uh, this time, and the next time. Well, one of the things that I hear said a bunch in our current culture in the church, outside the church, is this phrase, I'm only human. Mm-hmm. And we say that when we don't do what we said we're going to do. I'm only, man, I'm only human. I'm only human. Would you expect me to show up on time? I'm only human. Would you expect <laughs> me to turn that email? I'm only human. Would you expect me to not sin like that? I'm only human. You know, we talk about our humanity, uh, and we use that term, mostly negative terms. Like, I'm not a machine. Yeah. I'm just a human. Machines don't make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. <laughs> uh, animals, you know, are or cause effect, you know, ring the bell, the dro- the drool happens. Humans are much less predictable. So we're somewhere in between this animal and this machine, and mostly we're disappointing the people, and I'm only human. And I don't like that. So let me guess. We're going to talk about what it means to be human. We're going to talk about what it means to be human. Okay. And how awesome it is. Yeah. And how. So, so that's what we'll do today, and the next time. Next week we're going to talk about how to maximize our humanity. Okay. How to live into it. So first. Today, like, what are we as human beings? What does it mean to be only human? And then next, how do we maximize it? Yeah, we're going to talk cool. about that like sounds fun. five big categories that I think like, shape our humanity. It's kind of like, uh, so my dad and I used to brew beer. And in Germany, they're called the German purity laws. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's five ingredients, or there's four ingredients that have to be in a beer. And only those four ingredients can be in a beer for it to be a German beer. For a long time, I thought it was three, then I discovered a fourth. It was water, hops, and uh, malt, or that type of thing. Then they eventually discovered what yeast was. So they, <laughs> that was before the pre-yeast understanding days, the microorganisms. So that was four things. There's if it has more than that, they'd say, hey, that's fine. That's an IPA, or that's a this, or that's or that, but it's not a beer. It's not a German beer. Yeah. yeah. So the German period loss. I think about that with humanity, too, that there are five things, that these are the five things. They're the five ingredients that make a human. And we get them straight from Genesis 1 and 2. And I think that if you eliminate any one of these things, you miss the biblical vision of what it means to be human. And if you like, maybe overemphasize or deemphasize these, uh, you'll, you'll miss out. So, but, so we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 to find out, here's what God says about what it means to be human. Yeah. Where, where are the other places you see people looking? I think, so it's funny, I'm, I got uh, asked to teach something at Redemption Tempe on masculinity. So I was looking up on Google, what does it mean to be a man? just to see what came up yeah. and, and all the first articles that came up, like the first one was like how to be a man, nine steps to being a beast. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that the first thing we got about how to be a man was how to be a beast, a subhuman <laughs> creature, yeah. like a, some sure. type of monster, a non thinking yeah. dangerous animal uh, elsewhere. You, and then, then like the next thing that came up was like how to return to humanity. It was like a, a nude yoga thing. It was like, why doing naked yoga helps you re- rediscover your humanity? And so 
even that. I hope you didn't click that link. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. It was it was a safe for work link. It said it in the title, but the the whole point being was like we're gonna get rid of society's shackles like clothing and expectations and return to nature. And so so on like the kind of more conservative side, how to be a beast, and on the more progressive side, how to become like a tree. Both mm. of them had to do with becoming less distinctly human, huh, yeah, and becoming more like animal-like or plant-like. Interesting. And even like all the the poses in yoga, are like sunflower, you know, and it's like how to be how to be a non-moving a downward dog. Yeah, yeah, they're all animals, and so so I do think that even um, like among the conservatives or progressives, there's some level of like humans are like weak, or they're inept, mm. or even like in the movie The Matrix, humans are a virus that are just destroying the earth. And uh, so by extension, because people don't know what human is, they're using looking for natural metaphors like virus, tree, sunflower, dog, beast. And that's a big part of that too. The The other aspects of like what it means to be human typically typically entail just some obvious like de-emphasis, like de-emphasizing the distinctness of humanity. Other Other aspects have to do with like just humans as like pure pleasure receptacles. Like we can't know this is called like Epicureanism, which is like uh, from the founder, from the teacher Epicurus, which is a version of nihilism, which is like, because we can't know like, what a human is, then you should just do whatever you want and what feels good and maximize pleasure. So it was, it was the opposite of long-term thinking. It was just short-term thinking. Mm. We, I hear this from uh, some of my younger friends, you know, I hear for a good time, not for a long time. Meaning, because I'm not sure if I'll make it to 40, I'm not going to make any choices based on how it'll make me seem and like based on the return when I'm 40, you know, yeah. because I'm not sure if I'll make it till 60, you know, who cares if I, you know, do drugs and smoke because the negative side effects of that don't really kick in until you're older yeah. and I'm, I might get hit by a bus, but anyway, so. Well, the apostle Paul quotes thinkers like that, you know, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you know, eat, drink, be merry. Here we go. Yeah. So it's similar to nihilism, but nihilism means nothing matters not even your pleasure. Epicureanism is kind of like nothing matters except for maybe your pleasure. Yeah. And so that doesn't even try to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? It just kind of presumes we can't totally nail down the meaning of life, so we might as well just do what we feel like or mail it in. Well, so much of the search for meaning that feels like everybody's on, and it feels like, to me, like such a self-guided discovery. Like you have to create your meaning. You have to create your identity. You have to create something valuable because we're not really sure what this is. And I think what you're going to share with us is to go, no, you don't have to feel that kind of burden and that kind of insecurity around building identity and building meaning. God's given it to us. And, oh, and here's sure. a picture of, of how God's actually made us. Yeah, the current mental health crisis, the dramatic rise in anxiety and depression in the last decade or so, I don't think can be divorced from what, what I've heard researchers call choice anxiety, that you now face and have to make more choices than ever before. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not only do you have to choose your career, uh, but you also have to choose your gender and choose what it means to be human and choose the meaning for your life and choose uh, what the purpose and goal of your sexuality is. And, and so there's all these things that if you just receive rather than choose the identity that God outlines in Genesis 1 and 2, you actually eliminate a tremendous amount of choices you would have otherwise had to make. And you free up mental space and capital to actually invest in productive things, yeah. not just kind of angsty navel-gazing. And so my hope is that people listening will experience these five categories as liberating because they're going, God has already spoken. You don't need to rediscover what he's already revealed. Yeah, and I imagine, I mean, there's people listening to this. I mean, a lot of folks listening to this are part of Redemption Gateway. Some aren't. 
And I imagine there's some going, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I think about if there's a God. I don't know what I think about. And, and, and my hope is that as they hear these pairs that you're going to, the, these uh, descriptions of humanity, that they'll go, you know what, I don't know if God's real, but I kind of want him to be. You know, if this is what it means to be human, if this is what it is to be made by God, I, I think it's pretty compelling. So, Oh, yeah. Well, the, the presumption is that these, I'm sure even as I'm building this up, these uh, people presume these five things are going to be restrictive. Hmm. But actually, we say that they're actually they're liberating, they're calling, they're opening up. They're they're the Broadway. One of the things that uh, the the Hebrew writers didn't have words for anxiety, but they talked about a narrow path or a broad path. That the that the the being in a tight place, like you can, the, you know, the way out is small. But mm. God takes us into broad places, so out of a tight place and into a broad place, meaning into a green pasture. Yeah. yeah, there's openness. Yeah, that there's possibility. Uh, whereas, like, when you're like, this one thing has to happen, otherwise I won't make it through. That's like the narrow space or the narrow place. Whereas the Psalms talk about, when I came to know God, he took me into a broad place. Mm. And so I hope that these are received as kind of going from being in a in a cavern, in a cavern or a trench where there's one way forward to uh, wide open places as the uh, Rascal Flats people would say. <laughs> so each of these five descriptions is really a pairing. Why, why don't you share the first pair with us? Yeah, so here's why I think they're pairings, uh, and, and this is getting like a little bit of philosophy of language. So there's a, a, a term, hendiatus, in Greek, which means two through one, meaning using two words to describe one reality. Hmm. Um, and so it's not describing two realities, but it's describing one reality using two words. And part of the reason I think the Bible does this all the time is because a language is what we call semiotic, meaning it's a sign, it points, it's pointing to reality. It is not reality in and of itself. And so... A language is always approximating reality. Language is always trying to describe reality. And we, we need this all the time. This is why we uh, love letters typically have more than two or three words because mm. you're trying to describe one feeling about a person, but you're hitting at it with multiple different angles. And yeah. so uh, all these pairings tend to kind of being describing one reality or one, one core deal, but through two different lenses, two different realities. Huh, so Interesting, yeah. And so uh, I hope we understand even that language is referring to reality. It is not reality. And, that, and that's part of what's going on here. So the first pairing we get is image and likeness. Okay. So we get that in Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so image and likeness were terms that were used elsewhere. I think that the easiest way to grasp, grasp this is like in, in North Korea, there's an image of Kim Jong-un in every house. Uh, it's meant to remind the people of who's in charge and whose place this ultimately is. Uh, so that's like the image is meant to represent the leader and remind the leader. It's a, They actually have found these likenesses placed around other places in like ancient Egypt. And they're like little statues that were meant to mark the boundaries of the, of the kingdom or of the, of the authority. And so God says, I'm not erecting statues. I'm creating humans to be my image and likeness that are both meant to remind the rest of creation, who's in charge here, who this place belongs to, and they're meant to mark the boundaries of the kingdom or mountain. So like wherever a human is, there's, this, in a sense, uh, God's reign and rule. Well, it's one of the reasons why in the Ten Commandments, one of the early commandments is don't make a likeness of God. We got him. Because we already have it, right? We are that likeness. We are that image. Absolutely. And it's even like one of the core lies in Genesis 3 when Adam falls into sin is God is at, Satan says, you can be like God. Like I already am. Yeah, and if yeah. he wasn't dumb, he would have been like, I'm already like God. What are you talking about? You yeah. know, 
Uh, it's like selling ice to an Eskimo. You know, it's like you look like a fool. And this image and likeness, there's a lot of like question and discussion around what exactly that means, right? Especially in the Enlightenment, uh, in, in as rationality became centered to what it meant to be human in the minds of the philosophers, people thought that that included or meant rational discourse, like humans have rational discourse. But actually, like the way what that actually means and functions like is revealed throughout the text that image and likeness is the physical present representation of God. Yeah. And so I, I think that the best way of understanding image and likeness is the word presence. Hmm. That my physical and emotional presence is meant to represent God. And so I can't really separate my physical and emotional presence, you know, sleeping or waking or, um, or hot or cold. Uh, but there's like this, my body, my physicality is meant to be, a, a metaphorically, a, a living statue that represents God. And so the question I want to ask myself on this human, human question is, uh, am I faithfully imaging God? Am I faithfully being God's likeness mm. on the earth? And that's part of the call of humanity. Like I think about being a delegate, like the, the dignity that comes with being a delegate. Like if uh, if I was sent by Redemption Church to go and represent us somewhere, and I, I had like the Redemption Church logo on there, like I'd feel like there, there's this it's I'm it's me, but it's also I'm representing th- this bigger mm-hmm. thing, and there's there's a dignifying uh, element to that. Uh, when I've uh, gone to uh, uh, there's a season where I was on on this like interfaith religious council, and I was the evangelical who was sent there, and there was you know a, a couple different. Uh, uh, flavors of Islam, a couple different flavors of liberal Christianity, a couple different flavors of Catholicism, a couple different flavors of, of Judaism, and I was the like mm-hmm. Protestant evangelical, Protestant evangelical inerrancy of the Bible person. I felt like I'm representing a lot more than me here, sure, you know, because all these people have opinions about me, us, yep, and I'm trying to correct their opinions about us and and shape them in those ways. And so this is what's like the image and likeness that I'm not just representing me; I'm representing God and. Mm. Am I doing that faithfully? It's a tall task, um, and it's a dignifying task. And I think yeah. that, yeah, if, if that's if that's true that every person's made in the image and likeness of God, then man, every person matters a lot. Yeah, and obviously we all do that imperfectly, but we all have that same like ambassador level task to represent God. And I do think that it's the first description of humanity in Genesis one, and so I do think it's like the primary one. Hmm, okay. Like, if anything, it's like the hub of these other four. Like, this is like the main one. And these other four are uh, split offs. Like, if this would be the trunk. The other four would be branches. That uh, the other four categories you're going to get to, I think, are how uh, Moses intends us to understand this main one. But the dominant thing we want to understand as we think about what it means to be only human yes. is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. I'm only human. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like that's like we are so categorically different. Yeah, than the rest of the created order. Yeah, that dogs are not even close. Yeah, isn't that the uh, isn't there a Lewis quote where he talks about that? You know, humanity is so magnificent that if you actually had eyes to see how how magnificent it is, you'd be tempted to worship people. Yeah, he says so. you've never met a mere mortal. Yeah, there you go. I think one of the things we're tempted to do. So you think about differences of degree or differences of kind. Right, like, um, if we're going to use you and I, Luke, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, we're both pastors, the same kind. Now, there's different degree, different emphasis, 
but like our, our job title mm-hmm. or, or the, the difference is a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. Yeah. Uh, versus if I was going to compare, like if you think about the analogy of apples and oranges, yeah. you know, like who's better at their job? Um, <laughs> apples or oranges, Billy Graham or Michael Jordan. It's yeah. like, well, they both are kind of like the, the best in their lane. So sure. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, so it's apples and oranges. Whereas I think one of the things we're tempted to do because of secularism, secularism and, and Darwinism is to see the difference between like humanities and chimpanzees or humanity and dogs as matters of differences in degree. Mm. And that's not the case. Uh, the differences between the non-human creation and the human creation is a difference in kind, not a difference of degree. Uh, we're not comparing LeBron and Michael. Right. We're comparing Michael Jordan and Billy Graham. Yeah. Like it's totally different lane, totally different function, totally different definition of success, totally different wins. And if we find ourselves kind of uh, being tempted to think that, oh, you know, it's just, and you're kind of like, look at the DNA numbers. And it's like, oh, 98% similar DNA as though the ingredients are what makes the whole, that's not the case. Mm. You know, the, it's uh, it's the sum of the the total, the vision of the thing, the design of the thing that makes it what it is, not the ingredients of the thing. So, so the first pair were made in the image and likeness of God. Yes. The second one we get is interesting because it's male and female, Ish and Isha, uh, okay. that the two, and I think that's again like the the the. And two, that's just right in the very next verse, right? So God created man in His own image, and the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Yes, that. The, the male is the piercing one. The female is the pierced one. Ish and Isha. That's what those words mean. Uh, other male-female words mean that. Those two kind of just mean male-female. Okay. Um, so even like male and, and female having the root male, female, the Hebrew, that reflects the Hebrew, that it's mm. Ish and Isha, that the female word has additional uh, a vowel on it that really shapes what it is. And so uh, a lot of... Um, you know, feminists and, and neo-wave kind of language critics want to talk about how, like, well, the female is just derivative of male. And I want to say, well, that's, like, how the biblical authors understood the relation to language, that, like, there's, like, the sameness, but also there's, like, a, just a slight difference. And yeah, so the idea is that there's more in common than less. Yes. They're more similar than they are different. This is a matter, a difference of degree. Like, they're pretty similar. Their core thing, that even when Adam sees the woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh... Like, finally, another one like me. Yeah. He's been seeing all these animals running around, being disappointed. And he sees woman. He goes, like, finally, she's like me. She's she's human, like I'm human. Uh, you know, he didn't see her and go, like, uh, she's only human. <laughs> yeah. You know, she said, ah, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Another right. one as magnificent as me. You know, yeah. uh, creation of, of an, another image of God. Fantastic. And so I think that's a beautiful thing there. But. What we have there is that, like, sex and sexual differentiation, uh, that the two are separated and then brought back together and become one flesh later on, that that's, like, core aspect of what it means to be human. Like, I think uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. I forget, I'm not, this episode's coming up right after Valentine's Day, I think, and there's all this, like, do we make too much about Valentine's Day? And, and I think that uh, reacting to Hallmark is a, a good and worthy <laughs> task, whatever people can do that if they want to. But... Like there's a creative creational norm that is romance and sexual intimacy that male would come together with female and that they become one flesh and that a core aspect of their their identities is maleness and femaleness that God makes us substantially different that we should be proud of our maleness and proud of our femaleness and celebrate 
uh, the sex difference and also celebrate the the coming together of the sex difference, that these two that are different come together is a beautiful thing worth celebrating and being excited about. And Christians have this reputation for being prudish and not celebrating like the, the power and pleasure and connection of sexuality. And I think right smack dab Genesis 1 and 2, you have the, the sex difference and the sexual connection as a core aspect of what it means to be human. This is not just purely, uh, you know, sexual liberation. It's not like all the males and all the females all kind of orgying together, but there is this this marital intimate connection, um, this uh, sexual difference coming together in that union that is a core aspect of what it means to be human. And so I'll put this under the category of romance, hmm. even though that's a, a late 18th century term, mostly Italian, but this idea of like wooing, connecting, celebrating, intimacy is a very vital aspect of the two coming together. So it seems like it's, it's easy to either overemphasize the difference between male and female or, or underemphasize it, right? Like some of what's happening right now is there's this kind of like, you know, androgenizing of, I don't know if that's a word, but of everything like, Hey, whatever, like, you know, male, female, it's no different. Right. And, and on one hand that seems like, yeah, well that recognizes that, male and female are more similar than they are different. On the other hand, it feels like you're erasing some key distinctions and some key differences. So what happens if we overestimate the difference or underestimate the difference? Yeah, you, I, I would say that this is a tension to manage and live with, not a problem to solve, that in most of world history, there's either been an overemphasis or de-emphasis, right? And even now, depending on what part of the internet you're on, they're overemphasizing or de-emphasizing the difference. Mm. So either you have like, the females as superior to the males, which, you know, here, the arguments go like this. Well, 99% of mass shooters are men. So obviously, <laughs> sure. you know, you see a mass shooting, you're not asking male or female. You're going, well, we know which is the worst biological sex, men, because they do the most war and they do the most damage, they do the most raping, pillaging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, conversely, the opposite side, it's like, you know how many, the inventions, look at the statistics on who invents stuff, generates capital. You know, and so people want to look at numbers and decide who's, Who's better? Do you want to talk about patriarchy? You want to talk about feminism? You want to talk about uh, these various like movements that want to like celebrate manhood at the expense of celebrating femininity, or celebrate femininity at the expense of celebrating manhood? Mm. And I think that that's uh, all those like instinct to compete or rank is ultimately demonic on these on this type of stuff. Uh, but you see that Adam, that Eve is taken out of the side of Adam, uh, out of the rib, you know, not. Not out of front, not behind, to the side. And out of his head, not out of his feet. Yeah. Yeah, right alongside, side from side. Matthew Henry talks about this in his various commentaries, like that she's taken to be alongside him, that they have dominion together as part of the, the command here. And I, I do think that, like, the sex difference does have tremendous trends, you know, and if I was going to put, like, uh, two bell curves on a on an XY axis... Uh, if I said, like, you know, men are taller than women, well, that's generally true. It's not universally true, right? I have one of my good friends is, like, 5'3", uh, you know, God bless him, you know, and I have another uh, another one of my good friends, uh, I think she's 6'1", mm-hmm. you know, and so we need to be careful about universal statements about maleness and femaleness and rather kind of embrace generalities that because of testosterone and how those things function, there are gigantic trends that are significant, but they're not universals. Even like the sex act of like uh, of giving and receiving generosity and hospitality that one that one penetrates and one receives does kind of lend itself to 
the mas- masculine and feminine stereotypes or trends or archetypes, depending on how you want to talk about that. And yeah. so uh, I want us to talk about those things in terms of generally true, uh, maybe not necessarily universally true. Uh, understand there's differences within the sexes. Not all males are the same. Not all females are the same. And that doesn't mean that if you don't like check some stereotype box, they're not true. However, labeling something a stereotype does not therefore make it 100% false. Because <laughs> sure. they're generally true. It is yeah. generally true that men are substantially stronger and taller than women. That's not universally the case, though. So when we're thinking about humanity. We're thinking, okay, we're made in the image and likeness. We're male and female. That's a significant part of what it is to be made in the image and likeness of God. And, and, and on that note, one of the things we talked about in our membership packet was that even men and women are presenting themselves socially. Uh, we should and ought to like present ourselves socially in a way that doesn't intentionally confuse or distract from uh, our maleness and our femaleness. Yeah. That uh, are uh, being known as male and female. Like think about my sisters, Samantha and Amy, my brother Daniel. Like they present themselves differently, and I relate to them as brother and sister similarly, but also similarly differently because of yeah. the nature of the relationship. And so, presenting ourselves socially in terms of how we dress and and even interact. Is uh, is a sex interaction, and I think that comes from Genesis one. That's mm. not just socialization. Yeah, that's good. All right, what's our uh, what's our third pair when we look at Genesis one? The third one we got here is uh, fruitful and multiply. Uh, fruitful and multiply in Genesis one almost certainly explicitly means having sex and and uh, raising children. The dissemination and reproduction of the image and likeness of humans across the globe. We yeah, Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them. God said to them, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." Yeah. yeah. So fill the earth, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's all these images of God. Get them all over the place. And so it's have make more humans, have more humans. And so the task and call of parenting is again a core to humanity. Now this. Um, in this text, I think, is explicitly talking about biological, physical reproduction. But as the scriptures go on, it, it gets broadened in scope to include uh, the passing on of the covenants to the next generation. Mm. That, you know, like uh, leaders in, in the church religious assembly uh, are to pass on the faith to the next generation, and that's called fruitful and multiply. You see that. Um, in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Like there's this expansion of the passing on of the faith of, of Abraham. Yeah. You see that reiterated six, seven, eight times in the Old Testament, again in the New Testament multiple times. Yeah, not just for leaders, but every disciple is part of that Great Commission call to be fruitful and multiply. Yes, and so uh, while there's like the physical passing on of oneself to the next generation, and obviously without that, you can't also do the spiritual, yeah. but there's just a recognition that so many parents abdicate or prematurely die. Uh, so that's abdication of their own fault or abdication not of their own fault. Yeah. That there's like this culture of adopting either like literally, legally, or spiritually other people. And that could be called discipleship. That's passing on the faith to other people. And so I do think the primary focus here is that like a core aspect of what it means to be human is to have children and to raise them. However, I think there's a broadening of the application to discipleship and spiritual leadership in general, that we're called to be passing on ourselves, our wisdom, our insight, our faith, uh, our, our love, our connection to future generations all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting to think about, um, as recent news has come out, about China and how China, for the first time, had more people die than were born, um, at least since they've been counting. You know, and there's a huge, there's lots of questions about, you know, demographic crisis and birth rates and 
Um, you know, and a lot of the people that are, you know, holding to very anti-God perspectives uh, tend to not have children, <laughs> you know. And so there is a sense in which, you know, it, when we think about how do we critique the hell out of culture, part of what we do is we have children and we invest in the next generation and we, um, you know, give ourselves away rather than just living for ourselves. We give ourselves for the good of others, you know, whether they're our own children or children that we have the opportunity to be around. But yeah, And just to, this is this reality that in like the culture making enterprise in the culture make in the in the call to do this the first two things we see in genesis one and two are marriage and parenting Hmm. yeah those are not ancillary hobbies that you might pick later on Uh, we tend to think in opposite categories that the most important thing is career and income and then i'll add on to that marriage and then maybe we'll add on to that parenting but here the opposite is the case in the order of genesis is you have connection with god marriage then parenting and then this fourth category we're talking about now, which is subdued and have dominion, which I would understand is vocation. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting just before you get to that, that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Ezra Klein. He's a columnist for the New York Times, has a podcast. You know, he lives in He explains the Bay area. That's uh, his deal. Uh, he, well, he was part of Vox, which created explainers. Now he's more of an opinion guy or whatever. But um, I was listening once to an Ask Anything type thing that he was doing. And he said the number one question that he got was in light of the uh, climate crisis, should I have children? And I thought, holy smokes, we live in two different planets. Because <laughs> we've done, I don't know how many Ask Anythings we've done. I mean, I've never one time gotten that question. Never once. Not one time. And he says, that's the number one question I get. And and that's an interesting thing to go, okay, um, yeah, you could make that choice. But that's that choice, you know, is denying an element of how God made you. Um, yeah, it's also this, and this will get us to the next deal, is... We've talked on this episode about the Great Horse Manure Crisis of the 1900s. <laughs> right, sure. Right, where there's so many horses, too many horses, the rate which horses use poop, it's going to cover the New York City with horse poop. And then a human invented an automobile, and it dramatically solved this environmental problem called the Horse Manure Crisis. And even, I, I, I do think that humans create pro- solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. That They're innovators, they're creators, which takes us to this fourth pair. Yeah, that the subduing dominion is to generate new value. It's to mm. uncover the latent goodness. It's to pull guitars out of trees and pull um, Tesla batteries out of the ocean and to uh, um, pull novels out of a pen and to, like, to... So, so the word subdue most literally has to do with, like, if you look up the root of the word, it's like this. the, the word is used in, like, kneading bread that you're applying this creative force on the thing to make it become what it could have been, that it would never have been without the creative human force. You're making something into something better. You're adding to it. And the word dominion is also used in a concrete sense of crushing grapes Mm. underneath your feet. Yeah. That again, you're taking grapes, which are good that God made them and you're smushing them. So they become wine, which is better. And, and we can, can can be enjoyed. And so it's I, I understand this this subdued dominion as what, what I, I like to summarize as creative force. Yeah. That you are plowing the field to make it yield more. You are turning the trees into paper, into books. You are uh, turning the hills into uh, caves. You know, and so there's there's this Well th- this speaks really to the dignity of work. And I don't mean work as like something that you do in exchange for money, but just things that you do to subdue and have dominion, right? Yeah, the, you, you look at people with nothing to do, and they are not happy. Yeah. In the last 150 years, we've 
unfortunately come to understand work as employment. Yeah. But I want to understand work as applying creative force to the creation. Yeah. And in that sense, we're made to work. We will work in the new creation. Uh, work's not a curse. It's part of God's original design for us. Yeah, I think it's a totally legitimate desire to want to escape employment. I think <laughs> it's a totally unbiblical desire to want to escape work. Huh. Yeah, and I, and it's a I, good distinction. And I think that uh, until we cease breathing, work is good and a gift, and it's humanizing, and it, it keeps you alive and vivacious, and it keeps your body moving. And, and so the people I know who are in their 90s who are still kicking, they're ones who have not abandoned work. Yep. They've not kind of given themselves to the sedentariness. And so even like the climate crisis, I would say, you know, the, the primary way that humans have solved problems in history is through innovation, not regulation. And that's not to say regulation has no place. Sure. But humans are creative problem solvers. And the presumption that if I have more kids, they'll just contribute to global warming or whatever, I think is silly because I go, or I might have more kids who will invent stuff and make the world a better place and solve problems, you yeah. know? And, and I think I'm only human, meaning should I have this another bag of dust that makes things hotter or I could be creating the next Albert Einstein. Yeah. You know, I could be generating the next in, inventor of the Model T Ford. I could be like the, the child that will come from me, my parenting and my parenthood uh, is, is a creative force maker. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and everyone does that in different ways. But this this call to make culture or cultural artifacts, which are things humans have made, submitted opinion, I'd put that in the category of vocation. Uh, and that's to work as part of that core human task. Yeah, no it, doubt. It's, it's leveraging who you are and your assets Yeah, uh, for the purposes of unfolding the goodness of creation. So it's image and likeness, male and female, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and have dominion. Are we ready for the fifth one? Yeah, the fifth one, we have to skip down a little bit. Uh, and it's a little more uh, less clear when you just read it. So Skipping down in Genesis. Skipping down in Genesis 2, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, we talk about how uh, there's this, there's no one to work the ground, and so God creates Adam and Eve, and he uh, puts the man in, in the garden to work it and keep it. We see that in Genesis 2.15. Hmm. Work and keep. Uh, those words could be translated serve and protect, kind of like around the police cars, you know, um, work and keep. But if you think about, like, the police car aspect of it, serve and protect, uh, there's this element of maintaining order, uh, trying to uh, guard the contours of uh, of the environment, and so like uh, there's jurisdiction even, mm, yeah. Uh, with, with, and so, but but work and keep those two exact words are used later on multiple times by Moses in the role of the priests who are called to work and keep the tabernacle or or the the holy places or the dwelling places. And if you look at the parallels between Genesis two and the the temples and the tabernacle sto- creation stories is there's really this picture of the Garden of Eden was meant to be this temple, this mm. place where man and God would co-dwell. Yeah, heaven meets earth. Heaven meet earth there, that the, that, the, that, the, that the God who created and the humans who's meant to represent him as priests, that they are representing him, are, are meant to co- in, co-inhabit that space. And so I would understand Genesis 2.15 is, is really highlighting the spiritualness of what it means to be human. That they're meant to tend to and preside over and pay careful attention to God's presence in the earth in a way that no that no subhuman creation 
uh, does. And so I would put this as a category of spirituality, that a core aspect of what it means to be human is to tend to our awareness and connection to and fellowship with the presence of God himself in our midst. And, and that's uh, the metaphor there is that Eden is a temple and humans are the priests of that temple. And God eventually calls his people a nation of priests. Hmm. It's not as though pastors and people who in the Roman church calls like fathers are the only people with access, but all people who bear the, uh, uh, bear the spirit of God are called to be representatives of God to the fallen other humans that were these priests of, of, of a sense. And so a core aspect of every individual person's responsibility is to tend to God's presence and and protect it and kind of like uh, keeping it a space carved out for it. Like if you think about, uh, like if you go to New York City and there's the the garden in the middle, mm-hmm. I forget what it's called, Central Park. Central Park. <laughs> yeah. The Central <laughs> the Park. The big garden. The big garden, yeah. Central yeah. Park is in the middle. Like there has been like a choice made to protect and preserve that space because I'm sure economically speaking, that could be like 47 high-risers, Sure. Oh, yeah. But, like, the temptation... So this is where, like, human vocations tend to clash. Humans are called to make stuff, build stuff, produce stuff, and they're called to tend to God's presence. And just there's this natural tension that those things tend to want to overlap, you know? And so so often our other callings of parenting, marriage, work, uh, physical representation of God can begin to, like, encroach on our calling to, like, personally tend to God's presence. Mm. And so, so there is, like, a space protection yeah. that I think this requires. So we there has to be a fenced, intended effort to, in those quiet moments, see and savor mm. Jesus. Mm. Otherwise, our other human tasks, which are decidedly productive and active, can supersede or cut off or uh, we can put high risers in Central Park and yeah. kind of ruin a good thing. Huh. And so I do think uh, maintaining the tension between these is part of it. And I think that's why I kind of like that work and keep or serve and protect language that's used there in Genesis 2.15 because there is like this, uh, it seems like humans aren't going to have to intentionally keep building stuff. It seems like they're just going to keep doing it. Mm. It's going to happen. Yeah, Humans will make. Uh, humans are makers. They're creators. Uh, but it also seems like there's this weird kind of vulnerability to that other aspect, that spirituality is the easiest part of the human connection to choke off. Yeah. Like people have kids on accident all the time. Sure. People have unplanned sex all the time. Uh, people spontaneously generate new business ideas all the time. And people also, on accident, forget about God for 10 years at a time all the time. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me the the active and passive natures of some of those well, I, it's funny because as you're describing all this, I'm thinking about how, you know, a lot of a lot of Christian subcultures, the only thing they think about is working and keeping the presence of God, right? Yeah. It's like everything about life is only about the spiritual. It's only about Bible reading and prayer and scripture memory and fasting and on and on. It's only about that. And then people get kind of woken up to this Genesis 1 reality that like, no, actually God cares about all of life and you know, he cares about your marriage and he cares about your parenting and he cares about your work and he cares about these other things. And what happens is people then get so kind of like, oh, good, I wanted God to care about that, that they then kind of forget that, no, but he still does actually care about you cultivating his presence in your life. It's it's interesting how, like, a secular culture still really cares about three of these five things. Hmm. Like, oh, yeah, generate value, economics, you know, like uh, 
generally speaking, marriage is good for society. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can acknowledge that. Generally speaking, we've got to have more kids so we have more employees who contribute to the economic process, you know. Yeah. But that first one, image and likeness, and this last one, work and keep, do seem distinctly Christian. Yeah. And it is for Christians who are tempted to, like, get swept up into the world, it'd be easy to just kind of start only emphasizing those other three yeah. and de-emphasize the other two. It's easy to get swept up in sure. the hustle and bustle and grind of work because my non-Christian neighbors also care about that. It's easy to just got get swept up in generating and, and disseminating capital because my non-Christian neighbors also care about that. Uh, but there is a, if you think about like the monastic reality of the separatist devotion to prayer thing that feels so awkward because it's so countercultural, whereas like faith and work, God cares about your work, doesn't feel super awkward because it's not super countercultural. Yeah. It feels a little bit like uh, almost convenient Oh, God cares about the stuff that I already care about. Sounds good to me. You know, like whereas <laughs> sure. God wants you to cultivate space for prayer. Yeah, you know, within the Christian traditions, there's been this like big tension between the activist traditions and the pacifist traditions. I don't mean that in terms of war, but I mean in terms of like the monks and the politicians. Yeah. Like Christian politicians have done tremendous good for the world and will continue to do so, I hope. But also the monks have done tremendous good for the world in their separating and praying. And yeah. so there is like this, uh, the Anabaptist tradition like despises Christians involved in politics. Yeah. And the Neo-Calvinist tradition despises the monastic withdrawal and lack of responsibility. And I think holding together like the political, social aspects of and economic aspects of the faith and the monastic aspects of the faith um, holds together. So looking back at all five of these things, you have the trunk of the tree, image and likeness, you have these four big branches, male, female, uh, image, uh, male, female, subdued dominion, uh, fruitful, multiply, and work and keep. That's what it means to be only human. Yeah, man. I think that's a really helpful framework. And it'll be fun. Next time we'll talk more about what does it look like to, as you said earlier, maximize uh, in those different areas. I, it's interesting, too. Um, you know, All those are areas that we tend to make goals and uh, want to have different levels of, you know, quote-unquote, success in. And so we'll have a conversation about what it would look like to pursue that. Yeah, and the uh, big more. the big idea there is if the task to subdue and have dominion, like I think this begins with ourselves. We must we must lead ourselves with vision on purpose somewhere. Otherwise we're just floundering and that's what I hope we'll get to next time. Yeah, cool. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, thanks for your work on this, Seth. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening. It's uh, good to have you with us. If there's somebody you think would benefit from this, man, share it with them. Uh, encourage them to listen. And uh, I guess with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>